We bow our heads and pray. Gracious God and Father, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire and succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. The sermon text is on the back of your bulletin from Luke chapter 10. And beginning at verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. The Greek word for test here is the same word that's used of the devil when he tests Jesus. Uh, the intention here is probably not a good one. This is an opponent of our Lord. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, we've noticed this before, that when you ask Jesus a question, what does he do in response? He'll ask you a question. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of a scene in one of the Woody Allen films when someone asks a rabbi, Rabbi, why do you always answer a question with a question? The rabbi thought for a moment and he said, well, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with another question? That's just the way it is. And it's a good way to teach, to ask questions. So that's what's going on. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, do this, and you will live. Now, my friends, the first thing you must learn about Jesus, what you have to know about him above everything else, is this, that he is very demanding, very demanding. He does not lessen the demands of the law. I mean, he is not only as strict as the Old Testament is, but he actually heightens the demands of the law. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. See, he doesn't do away with the law. He sharpens it so that it pierces even the most toughest high. That's Jesus. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks lustfully at another woman has committed adultery in his heart. Tough stuff. He's very demanding. I remember two weeks ago in our gospel lesson, a man came up to Jesus and he said, I will follow you wherever you go. And what was our Lord's response? Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then Jesus approaches another man, he says, follow me. And the man says, well, first let me go bury my father. His response was, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the gospel. 
Another man said, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but let me first go and say goodbye to my family. Our Lord's response, no one who looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And we might well ask, why so serious? Why so demanding? Well, Roman numeral number one in your outline on the back of your bulletin, theology must be learned experientially. Experientially, or as Luther would call it, in the school of experience. Luther said that to become a theologian, and all of us are theologians, whether we realize it or not, we're either a good theologian or maybe a poor theologian, but to become a theologian, you have to do three things. Number one is prayer. And in prayer, we simply say back to God what he has first given us to say in his word. Our, our entire worship service from beginning to end is God's word. We're just saying it back to him. Step two is meditation on the word of God. You think about it. You talk about it. You memorize it. You ponder it. And step three is suffering. That's step number three in becoming a theologian. Suffering. Suffering for the sake of the word of God. And that's what Luther calls the school of experience. And my friends, suffering happens precisely when you're faithful to God's word. Suffering happens when you affirm the sexual ethics, not of the world, but of the word of God. Suffering occurs when you affirm that sex outside of marriage is wrong, it's sin. Suffering occurs when you affirm that marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. And you act upon that belief in your personal life, in your business life, in your extended family. And you lovingly stand on the Word of God, lovingly stand on the Word, even though you'll be opposed and even shunned by members of your household. Suffering occurs when out of love for others, you simply speak the truth of God's word to family and friends who may not want to hear, but who need to hear. My friends, peace with God brings conflict with the world. The devil attacks us. He, uh, he reminds us of our most shameful acts of rebellion against God. Our conscience accuses us, and we experience regret, and, and we we wish that we could go back to that day or that moment and live it over again, and we would do differently based on what we know now. But even our greatest sins, even our greatest sins, God works to our advantage because God uses those sins to drive us to the cross where mercy is. God uses our sinfulness to teach us in the school of experience that we cannot save ourselves on the basis of the law. We can't do this and live, no matter how hard we try. The lawyer asks, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, what does the law tell you? There's the, the counter question, and he gives the answer. Love the Lord with all your heart, your, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now here's my question. 
why would Jesus tell the lawyer to do something in order to have eternal life? Why would he say that? That's not good theology. Or is it? Theology must be learned in the school of experience. The lawyer must learn for himself what all of us must learn for ourselves, that we cannot do what the law demands, no matter how hard we try. We don't know how hopeless our situation is until the school of experience teaches us that our only hope is the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. My friends, ever since the fall into sin, ever since Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been in the ditch, half dead, like the man in our gospel lesson for today. And by half dead, I mean this. Even though we may be physically alive, yet spiritually we are totally and completely dead. That spiritual side of us is inert. It can do nothing. We may not feel spiritually dead apart from Christ, but Scripture declares that we are. And if we are, then we cannot come to Jesus any more than the man in the ditch could come to the Samaritan. The Samaritan had to come to him. The Samaritan had to revive him. He had to bind up his wounds. He had to carry him to the end, which, by the way, is symbolic of the church, just as the Samaritan is symbolic of Jesus. You see, that's what the school of experience teaches us. Experience demands, experience teaches us that we cannot be saved through the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ who died for our failure to keep the law. And St. Paul said it this way, the law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In our gospel lesson for today, Jesus sends the lawyer back to school to learn what the law is really all about. It reveals your sin. It doesn't relieve you of it. The lawyer needs to learn that he's in the ditch with the rest of humanity. And until he learns that, he's not ready to receive the good news of forgiveness. Point A, a smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. A smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. My friends, Jesus not only asks us to do the impossible in the law, but he puts us in life, he puts us in impossible situations. And that's also the school of experience. For example, the Lord sends David out to confront the giant Goliath. David's staring death in the face. The Lord sends John the Baptist out to speak against the sexual sins of Herod Antipas and it will cost John his life. Jesus sends the disciples into a boat out into the middle of a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then later, he sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves to proclaim the gospel. My friends, the Lord deliberately places us in dangerous situations. Why? So that we can learn in the school of experience that our only hope is to rely on him. We have no choice but to despair of our ability and to trust in his. Therefore, point B, true theologians recognize their helplessness. 
we recognize our helplessness. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. One commentator wrote that true theologians are men and women who limp through life. Better yet, I would say true theologians are men and women who see themselves in the ditch, weak and helpless apart from the Lord, who alone is our strength. So, that being said, why does it matter? What difference does it make? Roman numeral two, the Christian life consists of faith in the compassion of God and good works toward others. Faith toward God and his ability and good works toward our neighbor. In point A, this is a definition of compassion. Compassion is consciousness or it's, it's simply being aware of another's distress. Another's distress and the desire to alleviate it, to do something about it. That's what compassion is. You feel with another person. You kind of experience what they experience. There's a connection there, a bond, you see. I was at the county fair this past week and I had uh, a pork burger, okay? at the pork producer's tent. And um, I don't mind eating pork because I feel no connection at all with a pig. But I would never eat a dog burger. I've just got too much connection with dogs, okay? I would never do that. But, but see, that's compassion. I have compassion for the dog, but not for the pig or for the cow, for that matter. Point number one, it, meaning compassion, arises from a sense of connection to another. My friends, you'll have a heart for the needy when you see yourself as needy apart from Jesus. And, and I'm talking not just about financial neediness here. I mean, that's not such a big problem in America. It really isn't. Not if we have our head on straight and spend correctly. But I'm talking about spiritual neediness. That's where we realize that we're completely dependent upon the Lord. We're not independent of him or anyone else. We're completely dependent on his ability to provide. That's being poor in spirit, you see. That's spiritual neediness, and that's the point. And my friends, you won't see your neighbor. You won't view your neighbor as spiritually lost unless you realize how lost you've been and still could be if you depart from the Lord. Unless you recognize your own need for the gospel, you'll see no need to share it with anyone else. And that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Seeing yourself as spiritually needy enables you to see your neighbor in the same condition. And if compassion arises from a sense of connection with another, then point number two, God is connected to you. He's God is connected to you. We are made in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. We're made in his image. And yes, that image is disfigured by sin. It's almost unrecognizable, the image of God in us, when we come out of the womb. But Colossians 3, 9 and 10 asserts that we are being renewed in his image day by day. 
And one day, on the day of resurrection, that image will be completely restored in us. But he's restoring it already. I also cite Genesis 14. That's Abraham's rescue of Lot, his nephew. Abraham redeems Lot out of bondage because he's his kin. This is the concept of a kinsman redeemer. You see that in the book of Ruth as well. A Boaz is Ruth's kin, and he redeems her out of her condition, her poor condition. That's kinsman redeemer. And if Jesus is our redeemer, what does it imply? That he is our kin. There's a connection that God has with you. And point B, here's a question. Who are more generous, the poor or the rich? What do you think? As a percentage of income, the poor are much more generous than those who are wealthy. The poor and the rich who think of themselves as poor, filling in the blanks, the poor and the rich who think of themselves as poor are more generous than others. Why? Because the poor know what it means to be helpless. They feel a connection with those who are in distress. Because they experience distress in their own lives. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We see ourselves as dependent, as needy in the eyes of God, and therefore we open our hearts. We're more likely to open our hearts to those who are in need. you remember your own lostness apart from Jesus, then you will be compassionate to those who are lost, who are in the ditch. Recognize your own spiritual weakness, and you will have concern for those who are spiritually weak. When you understand their helplessness and, in a sense, their ditchiness, your compassion for them will grow, and nothing will be able to stop you from praying for them sharing the gospel with them, and inviting them to God's house. My friends, only when you remember that you too were in that ditch will you have compassion for those who still are. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.